I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 71. Today in the show, we're going to be talking about hunting hill country or mountain bucks. And joining us is Steve Flores. Alright, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, brought to you by Sitka Gear. Now, today we've got what I think is going to be a great episode, because we're talking about a topic that I'm pretty fascinated by, and that's how terrain influences deer movement, and how we can then use that knowledge to hunt deer in hilly or mountainous terrain. And joining us today to discuss that topic is West Virginia bow hunter Steve Flores, who's a freelance outdoor writer and the owner of 365whitetail.com. And I'm particularly interested in this conversation today because I'm going to be hunting in some very rugged and hilly country in Iowa this season, and it's probably going to be the most hilly country I've ever hunted in. So I'm hoping Steve can share some insight that will help me with this learning process. So high level, long story short, I'm pretty interested in this, pretty excited about it. But Dan, what do you think? Yeah, I'm always interested in uh, learning about new tactics towards hunting whitetails <laughs> <laughs> well that's very insightful <laughs> i uh i was actually up this up this weekend i was up in northeastern iowa and at my in-laws cabin which is basically just a trailer and we were doing some fishing and that once you get in in a ways away from the r- river up there it is very steep and hilly and uh i can see how it, it it would be very tough to hunt deer in that in that area. Yeah, yeah. Up where up where I'm hunting um, in Iowa this year is more towards the Mississippi in that northern reaches. So it does definitely it gets pretty rugged. It's, it's it's a lot different, and even where you're at is a lot different than I, what I think a lot of people imagine, or at least what I imagined that some parts of Iowa were. I assumed it was just flat cropland the entire way. Yeah. But there really is a lot of ridges and hills and contours. And up by me, there's big rocky cliffs and, and 
valleys and all sorts of stuff like that. So it's very different than Michigan, that's for sure. That's right. So, that's right. Uh, so yeah, it's going to be good. Um, but I don't know. What else is new with you? Anything, uh, any deer hunting news on your front? Let's see. So I think I told you last week I was doing some glassing, or maybe the week before I was doing some glassing, and I saw two giants standing in a hayfield. Well, I, yeah. Uh, later that week, I went and I got permission of where the where the hayfield was at, and I got permission to hunt that property or to be on it. Problem: it have to be from a ground blind, and there's no trees on that property. So yesterday, I just went up to the the main piece of timber that uh, I that where I feel that these deer are bedding in because uh, it's the, just the closest. Um, and I knocked on the door, and I got permission to hunt the property. Very nice couple allowed me to uh, bow hunt. He's going to shotgun hunt. He's, he's not a very serious hunter because he's really busy. But uh, uh, today I went in, hung a trail camera, and uh, did a little speed scout around, oh, I'd say the first 20 yards inside the timber. Just took a, It's almost like a right triangle, a real long right triangle, the way this timber looks. And uh, it is some of the thickest timber I have ever been in. So, you know, when you walk in, you're doing some scouting or you're walking to your tree scene, you get get this feeling that there's something big in the area. I like that feeling. Yeah, I got that feeling today. And uh, it is nasty in there. It is so thick. And uh, I decided, hey, I better get out of here while I can. And the next time I other than check my trail camera that I kind of have on the outskirts. Uh, the next time I dive in deep will be to hunt. That's exciting, man. Now, how much, how much acreage is that that you have access to now? Well, the house and the, the plot and the field uh, sit on a total of 80 acres, but it's majority field and pasture, uh, and I'd say there might be 20 acres maybe a little bit less of actual timber on this, on all that 80. Is that attached so, to some other cover though on neighboring properties? Uh, yes. So there's a giant pinch point that, so imagine the, um, uh, a right triangle with the smallest point on the right. So that's how it sits on a map. And then everything kind of goes through this pinch point down at the bottom. So it's one of those places where you, you know, you kind of sit all day and, uh, if you can get the right access and the right wind, you you sit all day and uh, you might have a chance of uh, uh, running into something. Nice, that's awesome. So, now, are we'll you see. are you heading down to your Southern Iowa property anymore before the season? Yeah, actually, tomorrow after I get off work, um, me and my daughter are heading down. I'm going to drop her off at uh, my folks. And then I'm going to check my trail cameras one one last time before we leave for uh, Idaho. And then the next time I go in uh, uh, to check those trail cameras, I'll actually be taking them down and moving them off the mineral stations to the pinch points, travel corridors, and food sources, and uh, making that that transition that we've talked about. Cool. Well, and that that's going to be on the 26th of this month. Nice. Well, I'll be uh, doing similar thing to you tomorrow. I'm going down to Ohio and checking the cameras. Oh, boy. Yeah, so oh I'm boy. excited. This is my I'm, final I'm Ohio trip, my final velvet trail camera pull for Ohio. So right. Today I found a fresh rub, 
So nice. And I've seen some other pictures of some deer hardhorn already uh, from friends, and it's uh, they're starting to rub it off, and it's getting that time of year where the velvet's coming off, and they're getting hardhorn. So. Yeah, it's it's happened. Yeah, I'd be surprised if there's many more bucks left in velvet over the next couple of days. They're most of them all are finishing off right about now. So, interestingly though, the last couple of days I've had I saw a couple of bucks here in Michigan and uh, some pictures, and they're all still holding on my on my farms here in Michigan. But I'm sure any day now. So, right, exciting. huge acorn crop this year. I don't know about where you're at up in Michigan, but the the ground is covered with acorns right now so when you think about it we're you know you're not seeing deer especially in states like missouri where i believe their uh hunting season has already opened or if it hasn't it's going to be this weekend um find acorns because they are dropping and dropping heavy right now yeah i've been seeing some by may too and you're right that's definitely one of those food sources that they start transitioning to really really hard right now and dude i don't know about you but my Facebook feed has just started to blow up with bucks. Like mm-hmm. it, it's officially feeling like hunting season. Cause I'm seeing all these bucks being killed in North Dakota and Kentucky and Wyoming yep. and Nebraska. So I'm very jealous right now. I'm definitely jealous. Flipping through Instagram. And it's like giant mule deer, giant elk, giant mule deer, giant elk, white tail, white tail. You know, it's like here pretty soon it's going to be on. And, uh, I don't know how I'm going to play it yet. I think I might, uh, I don't know what I'm going to do yet. I, you know, obviously I got to live, I live and die by my trail cameras, see what they say. But this property that I just scouted today looks really good. It's only a mile from my house. So I'll be able to hunt during the week a little bit, which is just equals more time in a tree stand. Right. That's definitely a good thing. Well, yep. it's going to be an exciting season, my friend. And uh, before we get to whitetails though, you and me have, uh, we got our big trip. We leave in just a couple days from now. Yep. So let's see, we're recording this on Tuesday evening uh we're gonna leave sunday yeah and uh, we'll be out there monday morning uh set up camp hike in set up camp and hopefully do some uh if all things go well be hunting monday evening so yeah it's uh less than a week from today you're gonna be in elk country with a bow in your hand i know i really don't want to talk about it because i'll just get so fired up that i won't pay attention to this podcast i'll be like (laughs) i'll have other things on my mind except uh you know asking steve questions like i should be well then we better stop so exactly we do have a great guest here steve is uh, a very experienced hunter out in hilly and mountainous country so i'd say dan that we just uh shut our traps and get steve on the line what do you say let's do it but before we get steve on the line we need to pause briefly for a word from our sponsors of this podcast sitka gear and this week in our series with Sitka product category leader Dennis Zuck, I wanted to get Dennis's take on what we should be thinking about when choosing the proper gear to wear during early season hunts, just like those that many of you will be going on in the coming days. So here's Dennis on that very question. Yeah, well, I'll tell you, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about that warm weather. I'm thinking about, you know, the fact I'm probably going to be doing some sweating. You know, and I'm and I'm also thinking about making sure that although I'm sweating, I'm still covering my body. I, I still have all the camo that I need, and then I have access to all my accessories. You know, all those things. Um, you know, if I'm doing that for my Sitka collection, I would probably you know, I would buy my lightweight 
um, base layer system, synthetic, because it's going to drive faster. Um, and I would get an Equinox system where I still have that rangefinder pocket. I still have those other things I need. You know, I'm thinking a lot about, you know, especially if, you know, I'm archery hunting, I'm thinking about my range of motion and I'm thinking about, you know, making that shot. So I'm going to make sure that the, I don't get anything that's too bulgy or bog, you know, baggy or anything like that. So there you have it. And if you'd like to learn more about the Equinox system or other Sika gear, visit SikkaGear.com. And now let's get Steve on the line. All right, with us on the line now is Steve Flores. Welcome to the show, Steve. Hey, guys. Glad to be a part of it. Yeah, we are uh, excited to chat with you. I just was talking to Dan about the fact that this year I'm going to be hunting a part of Iowa that is probably the hilliest country I've ever personally hunted for whitetails. And uh, with that being the case, I'm really interested in picking your brain all about how you're able to have success in that kind of country, especially since you're over in West Virginia doing this a lot. So um, there's a lot of pressure on you, Steve, today because I'm counting on you to help me kill my buck this year. <laughs> so <laughs> That's a lot of pressure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's harder than you might think, too, for <laughs> yeah, yeah. To, to make this guy look yeah. good. So uh, so that said, Steve, thanks for joining us. And um, you know, for those who aren't familiar with who you are and what you're doing, can you just give us a little bit of background as to what you're doing in the whitetail world today? Uh, yeah, I, I, on the side, I freelance. Uh, I freelance for major magazines, bow hunting magazines. Uh, I do a lot of online um, content on various web pages. Uh, I'm also running uh, 365 Whitetail is is my page. Um, so a lot of the content that I'm I'll be turning out in the next couple of months will be will be found exclusively there. Um, and like I said, I'm doing you know, different things uh, for other web pages as well. Very cool. And, um, you know, I, I know that you live in West Virginia, or you hunt in West Virginia primarily from what I understand. Is that primarily where you're hunting for, for whitetails too, or are you traveling anywhere else? Uh, I travel whenever the, the, the opportunity arises, but it's not very often. I mean, I usually, uh, I've got, three little kids and a full-time job and, you know, like a lot of guys, uh, you know, working 40 hours a week and then you know, taking vacation days when I can, when I can get them and, and hunting on weekends. And, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I like to get out anytime I can and, and experience whitetail hunting from a different area, but it's mostly, uh, in my home state. So, I do a lot of my hunting. so your home state, West Virginia, tell us about what that yeah. terrain is like. I mean, uh, you know, I've, from a high level, we know it's somewhat hilly, but really, what's this country like? Uh, the southern part of the state where I where I live and where I hunt, it, it's there's absolutely no fields. I mean, there's no food plots. It's it's all it's all rugged, mountain, rocky just terrain, um, and a lot of the areas are really. I mean, you really, really got to be dedicated to chasing a, a mature buck to even consider hunting uh, in some of the areas uh, that these, these southern counties hold. I mean, it's, it's you know, there's mountain country, and then there's there's southern West Virginia mountains, and they're, they're entirely different. They're just, they're so steep, so thick. A lot of these areas have, have burnt in recent years or in the past. Uh, a lot of the, you know, this is obviously uh, coal country, so a lot of those coal mines have over the years, they've created uh, forest fires from mine breaks and stuff that'll actually catch fire, which sets the mountains on fire, which it grows back thicker every time. So over the you know over the years and years of that, 
it makes some really thick cover and allows a lot of those bucks to reach um, mature age. Um, so you throw that in on top of the, the, the mountain terrain, and, and you've got a pretty good combination to produce, to produce some pretty pretty large bucks. Yeah, it seems like some of the pictures I've seen mm-hmm. that you definitely have been able to get into some big bucks out there that I think for a lot of guys, when they think of the eastern coast or the, the eastern part of the United States, those aren't the types of bucks they imagine are out there. So it seems like uh, you've been able to find some pretty big deer for that part of the country. Um, that being the case, you know, at a, high le- at a high level, Steve, when hunting this kind of terrain, and you know what I like to do is, is I usually like to start the high level and then we'll probably really drive deep into some of these aspects of some of the types of things I imagine you're going to mention, but at a really high level. What are the most important topics for someone to understand when it comes to hunting this kind of terrain? What are the basic topics that we just need to start wrapping our heads around? The first thing that I did, you know, that I really had to wrap my head around was understanding that all of the information that I gathered in, in most of the hunting magazines, because most of the hunting magazines are geared toward Midwestern whitetail deer. And, and it's not knocking any of those writers or, or that type of, of hunting. It's just that a lot of those principles don't apply to, to guys that hunt in mountain, you know, mountain bucks, like what I like to call them. Um, it just doesn't work. I mean, that, that was the first thing that I really had to come to terms with that, you know, for instance, I mean, Bill Winky was, was, was and still is probably my favorite outdoor writer. And a lot of, you know, what strategies that he used, I just, I couldn't use them. You know, as much as I wanted to because it was Bill Winky and he was successful and he was writing these great articles and I wanted to take what he was writing and, and, and be successful with it, I just couldn't because um, I wasn't, you know, I had different pieces of the puzzle than he did. And uh, once I really wrapped my head around that and started looking at things in a different way, that, that's kind of when I started having a lot of my success on, on these types of bucks. So are you are you referring to the principles, you know, or would you say that the principles of Midwest, any type of hunting, Midwestern hunting versus where you're hunting, the principles are the same, but the details are different? Yes. I, yeah. The principle, I mean, you, you know, the principles of scent control, uh, you know, anytime you let a deer know that you're, that it's being hunted, you're not going to kill that deer, um, you know, entry and exit routes. I mean, it, the, the broad spectrum of things were, were you know we can we can both use, but when you get down to, to little details, it, it, those are the things that seem to to make the difference in in, in the way I hunted and the things that I did. Um, so, what are those biggest it, differences then between the two? The, those details. What are the the aspects that you do with that you would categorize as the major? you know, unique points when you started looking at what's different between Winky's situation and yours? One of the things, I mean, I know he, he a lot of the Midwestern hunters talk about wind direction, playing, playing the wind, and that, that's good, and that, <clears throat> I, that definitely works in a, in a semi-flat, you know, landscape where you can predict the wind. A lot of places where I hunt, it, you know, for years I did that. I played the wind, played the wind. Well, the problem with that was a lot of the places that, that offered uh, a consistent wind in the mountains were usually my ridge tops were way down low and you know almost or you were almost out of the woods and you were in, in the valleys in the bottoms. Those are the two areas that offered the best wind directions. 
Well, it just so happens that those two areas both uh, hold the most hunters because of the, the most easily accessed spots in mountain terrain. I mean, everybody, you know, a lot of guys that, that, that hunt in the mountains, they they hunt the ridge tops or they hunt down low because those are the easiest places to get to. Well, you know, of course, your mature bucks know this, and they they may leave sign in those areas, but it's mostly at night, you know, so you get hooked on that sign and you get hooked on the easy access and you get hooked on the, the consistent wind direction. And you think, well, I should be shooting a nice buck in these areas, but it just doesn't work that way because those bucks rarely make the mistake of being seen in the daylight in those areas. That was one big, you know, that was one big, uh, big difference that I found that I needed to, to do. So <clears throat> obviously had to move into tougher terrain, you know, getting away from the tops and the bottoms, mostly in the meat of the mountain, the center of the mountain mostly. And the wind direction isn't always consistent. As a matter of fact, it, it, it goes every which, it's, you know, it goes every which direction. Um, Especially when it starts, if you're in really steep terrain and that wind starts hitting the, hitting that and it starts bouncing around everywhere and, and, you know, so that leads into another thing, another point where your scent control has really got to be spot on. If it's not, then you're, you're, you're wasting your time. I mean, you've got to, you've got to be extreme, beyond extreme in scent control because you can't so- play the wind. So with an un so with an inconsistent wind like that, you know, um, the last podcast we talked about in the pre and the pre in the previous podcast we talked about, um, you know, putting yourself in a position where the deer feel that they have the advantage. Is that more difficult when there is very inconsistent winds like what you described? Well, what I try to do is I, I look at it this way. I've I, decided that you know i'm not ever going to be 100 percent scent free and that's just not going to happen i don't care what i'm wearing or what products i use my my view is if i can i guess dilute my scent down to the point where yeah that buck may get a, a whiff of me but it's going to be so faint that he'll assume that i'm 200 yards away when actually i'm 20 yards away from him he's he's already dead he just doesn't know um so for me, that's that's what I, I strive for is to just to, to knock everything down as as far as I can, as far as the scent trail that I leave and the imprint that I leave. That it, he doesn't even consider it to be a threat. He consider me to be a threat because the faint the scent is so faint. So, um, so piggybacking off of Dan's question, real quick, um, how do you think then deer are using the wind? in that kind of terrain. You know, when we think about maybe in some of the Midwest country, you know, we might say, well, lots of times a buck will approach in an open crop field with a wind in his face or crossing so you can so he can kind of check what's ahead of him. Um, mm-hmm. Do you see bucks using any specific travel patterns to take advantage of the wind direction in some way or maybe thermals or something in mountainous terrain like that? Or does it seem like it's not um, because of the erratic nature of it, they don't seem to travel because of wind direction? What do you see? Absolutely. I've seen both, but I haven't seen I haven't seen enough of one way or the other to say, yeah, bucks in mountain country uses the way they use the wind. I mean, I've seen them I've seen them get downwind of me. I've seen them walk with the wind at their back. I've seen them walk with it in their face. I've seen them cut crosswinds. I mean, it you know, so it's I guess it's hard for it, it would be hard for me to to say, yeah, they'll always walk this way, or ninety percent of the time they'll walk this way in the wind. I just haven't seen it. 
that's not to say that they don't, but I've never seen it. I mean, I've seen it, it probably as much as the wind changes direction on me. I've seen bucks use the wind <laughs> in, in so many different. I mean, it just I haven't seen. I've never been able to put together to put it together to the point where I could say, Mark, the the, the, the bucks will always travel this way in the mountains with the wind. I've, I've just never seen it. Fair enough. Then what about thermals? The thermals factor into your strategy at all? Because I know that's, I believe that's something that's that's probably making an impact in that area. Is that true? It's something, I mean, it's something that should be thought out, but I, I will never, I mean, I'm, I go to, to such extremes with my scent control. I'll never move my stand. If I think it's in a good funnel or a pinch point, I'll never move that stand out of that simply because of the thermal might give me away because the thing of it is one thing about mountain bucks is that you can never be sure where they're going to approach you from you know i can imagine if if i was hunting a food plot you can pretty much say if you're hunting in the evening that deer's not going to come at you from the food plot right <laughs> he's probably going to come out yeah he's going to come out of a out of a wood lot or a thicket on the other you know on the, behind you which is you know you're setting up in between but the way i the way the mountain bucks move, they could come at me in any direction. So it, I focus more on my stand placement and how it's going to dictate the movement of that buck. If he comes through my area, then, then thermals or wind direction. That's not, that's not to say I don't think about those things, but like I said, I, will, I won't move a stand simply because the thermals are wrong. I just I won't do it. I used to. And I used to, you know, going back to what I mentioned earlier, I used to do that, used to play around for when I, I couldn't kill anything. I mean, immature bucks at best was, was all I could kill. But once I really started focusing on uh, why is that buck going to move through my area, one, and two, if he does, what's going to make him walk by this tree that I put my stand in? And, you know, it, for me, it came down to just, the terrain and how the terrain will actually squeeze everything down into a small area and hopefully you know it pans out that way and, and a lot of times it does if he comes to an area he, he's going to walk past me yeah so let's let's talk about that about the terrain you know it sounds like you know that's mm-hmm. it sounds like that's one of the major things that you are paying attention to to figure out where these deer might be moving so can you talk us through what those most important terrain features are that you're looking for. And, and for those people that maybe don't hunt this type of terrain often, can you kind of give us kind of the definition of each one of these terrain features too, or describe it a little bit? Well, a lot of it began when I first started looking at topographic maps. And if, if anybody's ever looked at one, it looks like just a bunch of lines, and they're all going in different directions. Some are really close, and some are spread really far apart. That's the, that was the key for me. Those lines that are really close together. That's actually really steep terrain, and the lines that are really far apart is is really easy terrain. So what I look for is an area where those two jut up against each other, where you know easy funnels down into really hard, or you've got you know really steep terrain on one side and and, and easy on the other. I mean, deer, you know, in the mountains are mostly lazy for the most part. I mean, they want they're going to pick the path of least resistance as long as it doesn't, you know, expose them. Um, so anytime I can find an area that, that, that even you know, it doesn't have to be a big area as long as it's a little subtle flat. I mean, I've, I've hunted deer on trails that were no wider than, uh, you know, an ATV 
or small or half the half the width of that, but it was enough to funnel a deer that he, he it was easy walking. He felt comfortable, but it was really steep on his upper side and his lower side. But you've got a little bit of a of a of a flat running on that. That's a really good spot. I mean, the, the deer will will pinch him down and, and funnel him. Um, a lot of areas I hunt have uh, just wall a wall of rock. I mean, they can't get up it. They can't get down it. And if I can find that, I can find a nice flat that, that runs above that. I mean, that that's that's money. It's money in the bank. Nice. So so basically, you're looking for these terrain related funnels. Um, yeah. That you know, look like you mentioned on the maps, it's going to be where that steep section might meet with a. With a flatter section, how do you find these? You know, if, if let's say we're, we're at the beginning of this process, let's say hypothetically I know I'm going to hunt this state forest maybe, and I don't know where in that state forest I'm going to hunt, but I know I want to hunt somewhere in there. Where do I start? Sounds like it starts with the map, but can you tell me, all right, how do I start really identifying these key spots, and then where do I go from there? A lot of times, like I said, you start with the map, and then, if I see a, a hollow that that's pretty with, with the lines on the map that are pretty fairly spaced apart, which means it's going to be easy terrain, it's not going to be really steep. Um, and then I start seeing an area where the terrain turns into really steep. I mean, that deer could move anywhere on that mountainside. But let's say, for instance, if he happens to move in the area where that steep terrain is, you can almost predict where he's going to move. If he's going to go, you know, above it or below it. I mean, you can almost, you know, because you know he's not going to walk through it for the most part. He's going to go around it. So you can start there, and of course you have to you actually, you know, the next step would be actually going to that area that you found on your map and actually looking for, with your own eyes. And a lot of times you'll be able to, you know, if the deer are using that area where that, where that easy terrain and that tough terrain meet up against each other, you'll see the deer trails, and then you'll be able to see which way they're going, either they're going above it or below it to get around it. And then you just kind of, it's just a process of elimination. You know, once you see, let's say, for instance, the deer are moving through this area and this, this whole hillside, this small section of a hollow is fairly easy terrain, and you get to one spot that's kind of tough, you know, you'll you, you actually be able to see those deer where they're going around it, either above it or below it. And then you just look for the right tree, you know, along that trail um, and another thing is coming to play like the, the, the sun I mean you can't when you're hanging a tree stand in that kind of that kind of uh, terrain it's steep I mean I've shot a lot of my deer I've shot I'll be out of a tree stand and actually shoot at eye level with these deer I mean it's so steep either you know depending on which side of the tree they come come in on me if they come above me I'm usually shooting eye level if it's below me then it's a pretty steep shot um, so then, you know, when you hang your stand, you really have to factor in things, okay, well, which side of this hill is the sun going to rise up behind me? Am I hunting in the evenings or the mornings? Because you're not going to be well hidden for the most part. So a lot of times you'll need to use something like a sun rising behind you to put that in his eyes where he can't really see you. Mm-hmm. Kind of the full draw on him. So where do you t- do you typically try to set your stands in one on one side or the other, so above or below. Do you have a preferred, um, you know, direction from the travel from the from the you know expected travel of the deer? I'd rather, yeah, I mean, I'd rather get above them, obviously, because it's you know, 
if I can get above the rise, it's 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 pretty good. But I, you know, even even still, even then, when you do it, I can put it above the trail that I'm expecting to kill one, and they'll come down uh, above me. You know, they'll come in from behind me and, and above me, and come down to be eye level. I mean, the, this one stand that I have, I've I probably the last six or seven bucks I've killed out of this stand have uh, it's set up to where the deer come underneath me. But every year there'll be a nice buck that I'll pass up. He'll come in from behind me, and he'll come down and be eye level with me and, and keep walking. Um, so it's just you never really know what direction it will come from. You, know, you just have to play the odds. And the odds of that deer, of the, of the buck coming in underneath me are higher than him coming above me. That doesn't mean he won't do it. Yeah. They're, they're wild creatures. <laughs> yeah, now, they in, are. I mean, you know, go ahead. No, go ahead and finish your thought. Oh, I, I just they they are wild creatures, and and like I said, it's not, you know, you not you don't have a section of 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 uh, a crop field or food plot out there where you know one hundred percent without a doubt they're not coming from that direction. It just it just doesn't work that way. Because you factor in. You know, the food here they have is, is number one, acorns, and number two is just browse. I mean, they just they, they chew on anything. So, you know, the buck that you're after, he could have followed a doe that that was feeding on an acorn tree that was up the hill from you that morning and not the one that was below you that morning. And that kind of, you know, and that's just going to lead them into coming in above you and not below. I mean, just so many different variables in us that it's nothing's ever... I don't think anything's 100% with any whitetail anywhere you hunt them on earth, but especially not in the mountains. I mean, it's just, it's, it's exaggerated. So you mentioned food sources um, just now and acorns to be one of them. So in the mountains, you know, in, in Iowa where I hunt, uh, we have, we hunt a, a bed transition area food source type of, that's just kind of the way we hunt. So we're, we, we hunt a food source, we hunt a transition area, or, or we're hunting over a bedding area. Um, mm-hmm. Are there defined areas in the places that you hunt that, that look like a bedding area? You say, oh, that's a bedding area. That's a transition. That's a, that's a food source. Uh, yeah, I mean, there, there's, I guess the hardest thing is, is the bedding. Well, it's all hard. I mean, it depends on... When you're talking about food sources, it, it depends on the number of trees that that produced mass crop that year, and they could be there could be five on in the area that you're hunting, or there could be two, and you know, and some could lose those acorns quicker than the other ones, and it, it so it's it's just a guessing game, and then uh, you talk about bedding areas, um, there could be three thickets in the hollow that you're hunting. Well, those those does could you know I've found beds in all of them before. I mean, and you know, so it, I, I still have yet to figure out what dictates where they bed. You know, why is this one thicket better than the other one? When I'm you know if I'm hunting in an area that I know is undisturbed and nobody's bothering it, you know, I don't know what makes them choose one over the other. Um, but there is a difference. I guess what I try to do is is, is locate the one. Let's say, for instance, the one thicket that I think has the most beds in it or the most sign uh, from years past, the most buck sign, buck rubs, and, and then I'll, I kind of just assume that, yeah, that's the that's got to be the most heavily used thicket because that's the one the bucks are visiting the most. Um, 
it's just like everything else. It, it, it just changes. It's hard to keep up with with whatever food source they, they prefer or bedding area. So are you going in every year and having to, you know, redetermine where does it seem like they're feeding the most right now this year, where they seem to be bedding the most, or do some of these things eventually, you know, it becomes year after year. You know that this thicket's going to be a top bedding year. You know that this ridge is going to be a major food source, and that stuff stays consistent. You know, which is it? It, it, it stays consistent. Once you find, like, the spot that I, I mentioned earlier, the one tree stand that I've got, that's, I've never had a tree stand like this in my life. Um, and it's, it's, I, I save it for the rut. I don't go in until the rut starts and it's adjacent to a doe bedding area, um, that, that holds the does year after year. I mean, it, it, it's been the most consistent one I've ever found. And for the most part, I think they're, I think the biggest thing that I messed up early on in my career, and that goes back to, you know, the, the mistakes I made was I would find a good group of does in a good area and I would start hunting and I and I would hunt with the with the naive assumption that, well, when the rut kicks in I'm really gonna get my deer this year with a nice buck and a big buck and, and it just wasn't it because I was burning it out every time I hunted it. And I think does are so in tune with their area that it doesn't take very many hunts to, to spook the does and to, and to change their patterns and put them on alert. Um, so what I do now is I find those does, I find a nice pocket of does, and I don't touch it till the rut. And that's that's how I've treated this stand, and it's produced for seven years. It's just the only year I didn't shoot a buck, uh, I, I, had, I had shot a 170 class bucket from this area, and... You know, all of a sudden my standards got really high, got really high. So I thought, well, I'm not, you know, now I can't shoot anything. It's got to be really big. Well, that lasted a year, and then I, I snapped back to reality. But that was the only year I haven't I haven't killed anything from this stand. Um, and it's it's situated next to a doe bedding area. The doe's bed on the back side of this ridge. I'm on the opposite side uh, in an area where I know when the bucks come through cruising, if they come through this area, and most of them do, they've got to walk past my stand because uh, behind me, it's it's pretty steep, and I've got a small little flat, and below me, it gets steep. So they, they're naturally going to walk through there. Now, like I said, some of them will come in from above me, and even ones below me, but for the majority overall, playing the numbers throughout the years, the majority of the bucks have walked right underneath my stand because of that terrain. And they're going there to find those does, which I've I've left alone since the previous year. I don't go in till second week of November. And I think the longest I've ever had to hunt from that stand to kill a buck was probably four days, maybe five. It's mostly over in two days. Wow. So and it's, you know, go ahead. I was going to ask you know these bucks in this type of terrain during the rut. Do they have a really consistent way that they're typically cruising this kind of area? You know, my assumption in, in some of the areas I've hunted is lots of times they're cruising, you know, a certain a certain part up the ridge, cruising those ridges to check for does bedded higher above them, checking the wind. Is that what's happening by you, or, or how are they traveling most of the time during the rut? I've seen them come from both areas. I, it, this the stand is situated just in the just on the edge of the lip that kind of drops back into just a little 
little part of the hollow at the, almost in near the almost near the top, but not 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 exactly way up on top where the wind just blows in you know in that one direction um, because there's really no funnel up there. The top is flat and they just they go everywhere. But once they come down from the top or they come up from the bottom, they get squeezed down in this one little area. And I think the the bucks that I've shot coming up are headed to that thicket looking for those does and they get squeezed down in front of me and then the bucks that I've seen or shot that came from above I get you know I'm just assuming that they've already cruised that thicket there's nothing there and they're moving on away from it to look for something else and when they come out of it they if if they even once they start in that direction toward me they've got to come through this little funnel they don't have to but the majority of the time they'll walk right through it and then they get shot if they're to make my heart beat fast enough. <laughs> <laughs> it just doesn't take much. <laughs> yeah, I, I understand that. So before we move on to another question for Steve, though, we need to pause briefly for a word from our sponsors of this podcast episode, Carbon Express. And Carbon Express this year has launched a new arrow called the Whitetail Arrow, and they've teamed up with the Quality Deer Management Association to do that and to create a best-in-class mid-range price point arrow. Now, to celebrate this new product, Carbon Express has done a couple things. And first off, they've created a new website called Whitetail Experience, where they've got lots of great deer hunting articles and videos, and they've also created a podcast by the same name with a lot of great bow hunting insights too. On top of that, Carbon Express and the QDMA have launched a giveaway contest in which you simply need to submit a photo and caption of one of your best whitetail experiences. And the winner of this contest will win a four-day, three-night, all-expenses-paid hunt with Carbon Express and the QDMA at Giles Island. So if you're interested in signing up for that or checking out their blog or learning more about the whitetail arrow, visit whitetail.carbonexpressarrows.com. Now, back to the show. So if if your rut strategy seems to be finding a, a, an ideal doe bedding area, finding a pinch point near that, and saving that for the rut, then what are you doing in you know early October or whenever the early season is in West Virginia? What are you doing at that point so that you're not screwing up your top rut spots? But I'm assuming you're still hunting sometimes. What does your set? What do your setups look like then? I'm, I've got one goal in mind usually that that part of the, the year is just filling my freezer. Um, you know, early on, if if you're going into a new spot, I mean, you've got to spend some time in that area. You can't just walk and say, "Well, I'm not. I found some days. I'm not going to walk in. I'm not going to walk in here till the rut." I mean, you've got to get, you got to figure out a little bit of it. So you're going to, you know, I wasted a year or two figuring out how the deer, how the does, and how the deer were actually moving through this area before I finally started saying, "Okay, I've, I've got a pretty good grasp of." of what's going on now i'm going to you know next year i'm going to hold off a little bit longer and the next year a little bit longer until i finally got down to where i was waiting till the rut but like right now um you know i probably this year i'm probably closer to killing a big a big buck than i've ever been in the early season and the only reason i've i've i feel that way is i've spotted this buck i've watched him uh, from afar, I've set some cameras up. Um, I've kind of backtracked just enough. I've moved my cameras back just enough to, to the first funnel that I think he's coming through 
So I've, I've hung a stand, and now I'm just going to wait until it's time to hunt and then see if my hunch is correct. And if it's not, you know, I'll have to move deeper, you know, find another funnel that, that's, that he's going through while he's on his feet, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Um, but right now, I mean, it, to say, yeah, I've, I've got this big buck and I'm going to kill him all this season, I've just not done it. I've never been able to do it because it's been my experience that, you know, food sources change. The cover that 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 is in the woods right now won't be there in a month and a half from now. So it's going to fall, and it's not going to. Those bucks aren't going to feel as secure as they do right now. So they're going to. Their travel patterns are going to change. Everything's going to change from now until the rut. But once that rut starts, their desire to find those does is never going to change. It's always. It's 100. percent It'll always be there. So that's where I, I, I just throw a lot of my focus and effort for that one time frame. It's paid off for me great, but hopefully this year it will be the, you know, the beginning of, I guess, uh, my way of figuring out the early season portion of, you know, of, of hunting mountain bucks. I've got the whitetail rut locked down, I believe, but it's, it's the early season that I've, I've always struggled with because of those changing variables yeah um, you mentioned hopefully go ahead. i was gonna say you mentioned um that you're using trail cameras right now to try to help you better pattern this buck can you share with us just in general um you know how are you specifically using trail cameras throughout the year um whether that be in this situation in the early season but then if you're using it later in the year during the rut or other times you know what does your trail camera strategy look like Right now, I'm using uh, licking branches. Um, I'm using there's a lot. I have, not a lot of people. I guess I don't know if a lot of people know about it or have tried it, but it's uh, using preorbital scent gland. Um, and I've just doctored a lot of licking branches. And basically, what it is, it's just like a, a mock scrape. Only I'm not putting uh, deer urine in the scrape. Um, a lot of these bucks will use the preorbital gland uh, in their eye or on the outside, like the lower part of their eye, to communicate their scent with each other. Um, especially when they're in bachelor groups, a lot of them, are, you know, everybody knows who's who. And and my my scheme is to introduce a, a mystery buck into the group, um, one that the rest of them don't know about, never smelled before, haven't seen, and then I start laying these, these uh, mock setups throughout this area that I think this buck is in and just set up a camera and, and hopefully uh, catch him interacting with that licking branch. And the buck that I'm chasing right now, I've actually got a lot of video of him, not just him. I mean, I've got, I've got a lot of video of, of him and several other bucks using that licking branch. I've actually got some bucks urinating in the, in the, uh, the scraped out area I have under the branch, and I haven't put any urine in it yet. I've just used the preorbital gland and the uh, interdigital gland uh, in the scrape. I've, not, I've yet to use introduce any urine into it. I've, I've just started getting some bucks that are starting to urinate in those scrapes. So that's basically right now. Uh, this year, last year, we had so many acres on the ground, they were still on the ground up into the early part of December. This year, I don't think we're going to have any. So that's what I'm, it's just, 
you know, and that's the deer will be moving a lot looking for food. So that kind of makes it a lot, you know, it does make it a lot easier as far as seeing deer movement. Last year, I didn't even pull my bow back. Uh, I passed one nice buck, but it was in the rut, and I was in my favorite stand, and there was, I knew there was bigger deer in the area, and I, I let him walk, and I didn't realize it. I'd never get to pull my bow back. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that's just the difference, and, you know, that's how it is. One year, it's there's acorns everywhere, and the deer don't, they don't have to get up. Uh you know, we don't have to move a lot. And then the next year, there's nothing. And they, they're moving everywhere. So I expect a lot of buck, a lot of big bucks to, to hit the ground in this area this year. So are you going to be using, yeah, are you going to be using your cameras during the rut at all then? It sounds like you've got a, a pretty good strategy at this time of year. Do they play a role at all once we get into November? Or at that point, you're just focusing on your funnel, on your funnel and pinch points and not worrying about what the cameras tell you? Well, no. I, I mean, even though I'm, even though this this stand cycle that I've got is is tremendous, I don't, you know, I don't stop looking. There's always, you know, there's always. I think there's always something better to be had, and there's no, you know, there's nothing better than having one one good one good rut stand, except for having two good rut stands. <laughs> you know, so if I can find another area, you know, that that seems that it might hold some promise, I'll go ahead and set some cameras up. A good camera with a large uh, SD card and some good batteries, and just leave it, leave it alone. A lot of times, I've done that. A lot of times, not check it until I've tagged out in, in the other area that I'm hunting, or after the season, I'll go back and grab that card. And a lot of times, I can start piecing together, or, you know, looking at another area and saying, "Yeah, this this might be another good spot." Um, and then, you know, then I've got two spots. And if, you know, a friend comes along, wants to go, or my wife bow hunts a lot, I've always got to have, you know, a second good spot hanging around for something. So who Um, gets the second good spot, you or your wife? What's that? Who gets the second good spot? (laughs) Uh, Probably my wife. (laughs) (laughs) Well, hopefully she doesn't listen to this podcast. (laughs) Yeah, well, I'll, I'll, I won't tell her when it comes on. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so Dan, you've been listening in for a little bit. Where any other questions you've got for Steve? You know, in regards to this type of terrain or, or how it might apply to what you're doing in Iowa. Yeah, I have a question about access. Um, okay. Now, what first? My first question. You can answer this very simply if you if you know. What kind of elevation are we talking here? Are we talking uh, like big Appalachian mountains? Is that where you're hunting yeah. in? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. are you access to your stands? Are you, are, is most of the access, are you going down to the stand or are you coming up to the stand? It, it just varies. I mean, it, it really does. Um, sometimes, I mean, you know, I'll go, I'll access, let's say, 75% of it from an ATV, and then I'm walking the rest of the way in, where a lot of guys will access 90% of it on an ATV and walk the last 10%, you know, and I think that hurts a lot of them. But it, it really it really just depends on the situation. I mean, I, I can't say that I'm always walking up or down. I mean, it, it, some of them I park and I'll walk side hill. The other ones, you know, a lot of guys don't walk uphill. They'll, they'd rather walk down, I think. Um 
you know, and they, they drive up, they get on tops of the ridges, and they find a little spot just over the hill. And and I used to be one of those guys. I mean, I did the same thing. You know, it was easy access, consistent wind. Why ain't I killing a big buck? And I finally just got tired of that. And, and I thought, there's got to be a different way. There's got to be a better way. It's going to be a harder way, but it's going to be better as far as, you know, results go. It's, it seems like it'd be tough to figure out the right access route in an area like this where, you know, I'm thinking like trying to come in for an evening sit and mm-hmm. I have to, you know, it sounds like it's big timber. You know, I would be so mm-hmm. worried about spooking deer heading into my tree stand. You know, how do you, how can you get in there without, is it just simply you have to learn a property, figure out where those couple ideal bedding areas are, and then just make sure you're staying away from those and you try to access in the evening or you know, what's your rhyme or reason to figuring out the right access route? Well, I mean, you're never going to be 100%, you know, without bumping a deer. I mean, it's, it's going to happen, like I said, because they just, they go everywhere. You know, especially when there's not a lot of food and they're browsing and they're just browsing everywhere, you're going to run into deer. It's just, you know, I try to just play the odd, you know, find those good bedding areas or find those, those funnels. If I can find a deep ravine that runs, you know, from the bottom of a hill, you know, 200 yards up the hill, but gives me, you know, but keeps me out of sight and provides, you know, nice quiet walking. I'll take that over, you know, a four-wheeler ride that takes me to the top, and then I got to walk right down in the middle of that funnel, or right down to that stand, right, you know, where everybody can see me, the deer can hear me and see me coming for, you know, across the valley and, you know, see my flashlight in the middle of the night. I mean, I've accessed stands where, you know, I could take I could have took my ATV to the very top and walked ten minutes and got in my stand, but I wouldn't do it. I'd go in from the bottom and walk up a, a, a deep ravine full of rocks, and because none of the deer could see me, and most of them couldn't hear me because I was walking on rocks instead of leaves, and I would just pop up within fifty yards of my stand and just take my time that last fifty yards and slip in and and. Uh, wear them out that was the early season stand i used to do that a lot it's one of my favorites and then like a lot of things around here you know public land and once they cut an atv trail everybody uses it and then it just the deer booger out they move on to another area yeah so speaking of wearing a spot out or you know putting in your time um during the rut are you are you hunting all day once you get to a stand like that or or are you just morning and evening no i'm all day yeah. Any advice? Yeah, yeah. I was gonna say any advice on on pulling that off. I know I do the same thing, but a lot of people struggle with all day sits. Uh, any advice mm-hmm. on how to pull that one off? I use, I mean, for me, if I've got a a, a nice uh, trail camera picture of, of a you know whatever buck I'm chasing, that's usually about all I need. I mean, it, it, and you know, I tell myself it's just you know if I do everything right. It's only going to be a couple of days. I mean, I can survive anything for a couple of days. You know, get a nice, comfortable stand, get some good trail camera pictures that confirms, you know, that gives you some some motivation to sit there all day, get some good food, you know, be in shape. You know, all those things factor into, you know, get some good clothing. Um, all those things factor in with, with helping you stay there. I mean, and as, as bad as I think, Sometimes, you know, your, your iPhone is for keeping you preoccupied instead of 
just enjoying what's out there and paying attention to what's out there. Sometimes that helps take the edge off too. If you can chat with a buddy for a few minutes or, you know, talk to your wife for a few minutes or whatever. I mean, that, that, that always helps too. But I mean, I just try to picture the, the big pick, you know, the big goal that's in mind and that's shooting a mature buck. And, you know, especially if I've got an image of him, sometimes I'll print that out, stick it under my hat. Every time I want to leave, I'll pull that out and say, hey, you got to stay. <laughs> I like that. It's a good idea. I think I, I need to try that because it definitely, you know, like you said, it it's it can be so tempting after, you know, three, four, five full days on stand. You're freezing your tail off. Maybe the action mm-hmm. hasn't been good, so you're not seeing anything. You're getting disheartened. I mean, it's really easy to get tempted to say, ah, screw this. I'm going back and enjoying a nice hot lunch. But, man, yeah. the, the thing is that that time you go get the hot lunch could be the one time that your big buck cruises through there and you missed it. Yeah. So. Yeah, I had a big one a few years ago. I I, I, I caught up uh, a few pictures of this buck in the early season, and, and he was near my rut stand. I was using some of that pre-orbital stuff. I thought, hey, I'm going to hunt this guy when the rut starts. Took a week off vacation. Day one, had a bunch of honeydew stuff that needed to be done. I thought, eh, what's it going to hurt one day? I'll just I'll take one day of my vacation, and I'll come out looking like a king. I'll get all this stuff done. So I went the, the next day to get in my stand, pulled my card in the dark, got up my tree, slipped the card in my camera and turned it on, looked, and there he stood the day before <laughs> when I was home. You know, so it's, yeah, during the rut, I mean, you got to, I'm sure you know this, you got to put in as much time as you can. Yeah. It's, it's just something you got to do. It's a numbers game to some degree. You put yourself in the right place and then uh, just tough it out long enough till he eventually comes through. Yes. Yes, exactly. It's a numbers game. Yeah. So I feel like we've got a good idea of, of what you're doing during the early season to try to figure these deer out a little bit. And then when it comes to the rut, you know, we're identifying those doe bedding areas, finding the pinch points near them, and then just putting in your time. Um, I think for a lot of guys, it's going to help them put together a base strategy when it comes to hunting this mountainous terrain or very hilly terrain. But if there was just like a, a couple of the most common mistakes that people make in this type of hunting situation that maybe we haven't touched yet. Is there a couple of those mistakes that we need to make sure we are absolutely not making in this kind of, in this kind of place? Uh, a lot of guys, a lot of guys I see don't take their scent control serious. Um, I see a lot of guys standing at the gas station in the morning with their, with their, their hunting outfit on. Um, it just, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how how they can think that that, that that's going to lead to a buck, uh, you know, a mature buck because it won't. Um, it's it's got to be. It's got to. You got to be beyond obsessed with your scent. I mean, in every in every way. I mean, I start. I start a month out from my my opening day, and I start the whole. The whole routine, the washing, the clothes, my clothes, I don't wear any cologne, I don't use any aftershave, I don't use shaving cream. I mean, it's, it's you know, I think that's the number one thing, is, you know, apart from what we've discussed and, and the strategies and what to look for is the scent control. And with that, that wind, the way it bumps around, you, get, you know, you don't have a chance if you're not, uh, if you're not obsessed with, with scent control. You mentioned, um, you know, not wearing your clothes out when you're out and about and, and being careful about what kind of scented stuff you put on 
you. Can you can you share with us what else you do from a scent control standpoint? You know, from the very beginning to the end, what's your full scent control regimen? Because we all kind of have different variations. It's always curious to hear what each person does. What specifically entails your your scent control obsession? Start like I said, starting about a month out, I start I start bathing with nothing but scent free soap. A lot of guys will do this uh, on Friday nights before they're going to go hunting on Saturday. But Monday through Friday, they're they're wearing cologne to work, and you know, they're shaving with with uh, shaving cream. I mean, and I, you know, I can still smell that stuff on my hands. Uh, you know, I'll shave shaving cream, and then I try to wash my hands and scent free soap, and I can still smell that stuff on my hands. Uh, you know, hours or a day or two afterwards. If I can smell them, a deer can smell them. So, you know, starting a month out, I start start bathing with scent free soap, just so I know without a shadow of a doubt. There's nothing on my skin that that's that's going to give my position away. So, and I don't think you know as good as those products are. I just don't think that you're going to get the the full effect of them if you use them the night before and you you haven't practiced any scent control uh, uh, steps Monday through Friday and then you try to bathe like that the night before hunt. I just don't think you can you can pull it off in an area where you're not playing the wind. Um, I do that. Uh, I take chlorophyll peels. Um, the washer, you know, I always run an empty wash in the washing machine before I throw my hunting clothes in. Um, spray down the dryer, dry it out real good. Spray it down with some scent control stuff. I don't touch my 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 clothes with my bare hands. I always wear rubber gloves. Um, the towel that I dry off on in the mornings, it's also scent-free. I don't let my wife, my wife doesn't use any any kind of detergent that she uses. It's scent-free uh, through the week for the kids' clothes, her clothes, my clothes. I got to convince my wife to do that. <laughs> What's the yeah, trick to that? Yeah. <laughs> I don't, well, I, she both hunts too, so she understands. There you go. You know, she understands it. I mean, she she knows my pain. <laughs> she knows what I go through. Um, so yeah, I mean, so right off the bat, I mean, I'm not trying to, you know, I don't have to override all that scent from five days prior for you know the night before a hunt, and it's just you know, um, so I've got that going for me. Like I said, the towel that I dry off on, it's it's scent free also. And I've seen a lot of guys, you know, they'll. A lot of my buddies, they'll, they'll, they'll bathe and sit for soap and get out and grab that towel that their wife washed. It smells like downy. I mean, when your skin's wet and you're taking a towel that's, that's got that downy scent on it, man, you're just you're just covering yourself in that. The deer will pick you off. And they, then they'll put on the scent control clothing and get winded and say, well, that stuff doesn't work. They close it. That's a gimmick. It doesn't work. Well, it's not a cure-all for everything, but, you know, but you've got to, you know, you You've got to help that clothing out or that scent control spray or something. You know, you've got to do a little bit on your part to, to help it. Um, my clothes, net, my boots, nothing I, nothing I hunt in ever sees the inside of my house or my vehicle. It goes straight out into the washer and the dryer and into my bag, and then it gets put outside in my garage. It doesn't stay, um, doesn't stay in the house. And then the actual clothes that I wear, that I drive in my vehicle to my hunting area, those have also been been washed and they're scent free. Uh, complete change of clothes from everything from my socks and underwear to pants and shirt 
it all comes off and put my hunting clothes on. And then when I get done, I come out of my clothes, my hunting clothes, and put those clothes back on for the drive home. And I don't deviate from that that process ever. Um, so I just on top of that, and like I said, trying to stay in, in as best shape as I can so that, you know, that 200-yard walk up the hill or however long it is, it's not going to, you know, the less I can sweat doing that, the better off I am. The only way I'm going to sweat less is to be in better shape. Uh, yeah. Or if it's 10 degrees outside, right. <laughs> I might not sweat too much. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's and then all that ties into, you know, a whole system where, you know, if you deviate from one, one part of that, then it just makes the overall system weaker. So it's just, I get obsessed with it. You know. Yeah, it's it's something we talk about a lot. It's just that, you know, when it comes to hunting mature bucks, whether it be in the Midwest or definitely in an area like you, um, where you're at, it really does come down to the little things, to these tiny little details. And you have to get a whole lot of these to all line up just right to get those rare opportunities. Um, so at least as far as I'm concerned, every single tiny variable that I can control I want to because there's mm-hmm. you got to control what you can because there's a whole lot of things out of your control when it comes to the deer. So, um, man, I'm a big believer in a lot of the stuff you said there. Just paying attention to the little things, being obsessive when you have to because it really does pay off in the long run. Yeah, it does. It does. Well, and, uh, it, and it makes it worth it. I mean, when you when you put your hands around those that set of horns that you've been dreaming about for months or maybe years it makes everything worth it. it makes it easier to do oh yeah so so what's this big buck look like that you're waiting on to hopefully get an arrow in early season um he will be he will be my second large i don't know if i don't know if he's he's, he's going to hit the 170 like like the last one i mentioned but he's going to be i want to say he's going to hit 160 um and for here that's you know that's the equivalent of a 180 in the Midwest, I mean, it's just, you don't see them that often. Um, especially in the area I'm hunting in, because it's, it's, uh, it's, it's open season on anything. I mean, it, it, for this buck to be this big and still alive is, is a rarity. Um, hopefully I can, I can follow up with you and let you know. Yeah. <laughs> Send you some, some good picks of him in my hands. That's, that's um, what I'm hoping. Yeah. I've got three weeks, um, uh, we opened on the 26th, so I'm hoping to uh, to have him then. But yeah. you know, it's like everything else. I mean, you can't uh, you can't put all your eggs in one basket or all your hopes on on one buck. And, and, and he's a wild animal, and he's he's not my buck. He could be anybody anybody's buck. So I kind of try to keep it in perspective. Um, and if it's if it's meant to be, it'll it'll happen. Yeah, yeah, that's wise words right there for all of us because there is the uh, the tendency for a lot of people, and I've been guilty of it at times too, where you get so excited about one deer, uh, you forget that there's a lot more to it. So, so that's a great reminder. Yeah. And you forget that there's a lot more. There's a lot of other hunters out there too. You know, there are a lot of guys say, "Well, he shot my buck." Well, I don't know that that was your buck, right. your buck or my buck or anybody's buck. It just, you know. Uh, that's you got to keep that in perspective yeah yeah very true so steve we are we are coming up on here on time and uh this has been awesome dan actually had to drop off he has uh some 
little child issues. He's a, he's a parent of a new newly born, so he's dealing with that. But I know he learned, yeah, <laughs> he really enjoyed this too. So so thank you, Steve. And if anyone listening wants to see more from you and some of your articles or blog posts in the future, where can they go online to see that? Uh, they can visit. They can find my stuff on uh, 365whitetail.com, uh, deerlab.com, and probably going to do a set of features for AmericanHunter.org coming up. Um, that's kind of in the works right now. Um, and aside from that, I I write for Bow Hunting World, Peterson's, um, Bow and Arrow. Um, so. Any of those magazines or those online sources would be a good way to, to, to find me or just to look me up on Instagram or Facebook. And I usually post my latest stuff on there, and, and that'll take you right to it. Cool. Well, we will make sure to link to those things in the blog post for this episode, too. So anyone listening, if you want to find that, we'll have links. So, Steve, this has been great. Um, I've definitely learned a few things, and I'm excited to uh, to test some of these ideas out in my own hill country. So, so thank you, and uh, good luck this season, Steve. Thank you, Mark. I, I really appreciate the opportunity to uh, talk about my favorite big game animal. Absolutely. Well, make sure you get back in touch when you shoot that big one, all right? Uh, I definitely will. Best of luck to you, too, this year, man. All right. Thanks, Steve. Bye-bye. Thank you, Mark. All right, that is going to do it for us today. And thank you again, Steve, for sharing all that awesome insight. Now, a couple quick updates before we wrap things up. If you want more podcast episodes in your life, we do have our new show, Whitetail Q&A, that comes out twice a week. These are short episodes in which we answer one listener-submitted question on Tuesdays and Wednesdays. If you want to check that out, go to iTunes and search for Whitetail Q&A or go to wiredhunt.com slash Whitetail QA and you will see those episodes there. So be sure to check that out. And if you happen to like it, we would really appreciate a rating or review on iTunes. Other than that, we do need to thank our partners who help make the Wired to Hunt podcast possible. So big thank you to Sitka Gear, Trophy Ridge, Bear Archery, Redneck Blinds, Huntera Maps, Ozonics, Carbon Express, Lacrosse Boots, and the Whitetail Institute of North America. Please help the Wired Hunt podcast by supporting these companies and letting them know that you enjoy the show. We really appreciate it. So all that said, most importantly, thank you all for joining us today. We really appreciate you tuning in, and I hope you learned a lot today. So until next time, have a great week. Hopefully you're hunting now or soon. So if you are, go get them. And otherwise, stay wired to hunt. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank, 
hunters and anglers rely on Seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. 